0: John five sixteen to 47. This is from 1000, page 1068 in the church Bibles. If you need one, please raise your hand. And Jenny can bring you one of water. This is page 36 in the John journals. From verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true you have sent to john and he has testified to the truth not that i accept human testimony but i mention it that you may be saved john was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light i have testimony weightier than that of john for the works that the father has given me to finish the very works that i'm doing testify that the father has sent me and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings. But I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say?
1: Thank you very much for reading. Uh, welcome, everybody. Great to see you. If you're um, welcome, if you're um, new here, if you're visiting, lovely to have you with us. Um, we are midway through a series in John's Gospel, um, and after that reading, I'm going to pray once more. Father, we ask that please, by your Spirit, you would make these things clear to us that we might rejoice to know you through your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder um, if you ever find yourself wondering who's in control. And perhaps as you look at your own life, and perhaps as you look around the world, you wonder if things might just be spiraling out of control. It might be that um, things like the climate crisis make you feel that way, and perhaps it's global conflict, perhaps closer to home, it's illness or grief, Um, that feeling of things being out of control. Some of us will be familiar with that. And perhaps not just the thought that there seems to be nobody in control, but for some of us, sometimes the thought occurs that maybe it's worse than that. Lots of people today are caught up in the thought that there are unseen forces out there that want to control and manipulate us. That if you really want to understand the world, you'll realize that you peel away the layers and what you find are um, oppressions and power plays used against us. The thought that the world is not at all a safe place. It means that uh, lots of people are wondering who is in control. Can they be trusted? What does that mean for us? And well, this morning, we're going to think about this um, remarkable speech that Jesus gives um, here in John's Gospel as he describes in some really remarkable detail who he is and how he relates to God the Father. Um, And we're going to see that it speaks into some of those questions Um, who is really in control and how can they be trusted? Um, It's a story that begins with Jesus um, on the defense. If you were with us last week, you'll know that Jesus um, is in trouble because he has healed a man on the Sabbath. Um, He's upset the Jewish leaders. And when Jesus is challenged about that, um, he doesn't try and calm things down. Um, In verse 17, he begins to speak in his defense, Um, and yet it doesn't go well. In verse 18, their response is there. For this reason, he tries to defend himself. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. What is going on? Why does what Jesus says so outrage them? Well, the thing to realize is that there is only one person in everyone's mind who is allowed to work on the Sabbath. And in the Jews' mind, that is God himself. Um, You might know the story from from Genesis, how God creates the world in six days and then rests on the seventh. Um, But as the Jews thought about it, they realized, well, of course God doesn't rest in every sense, because somebody still causes the sun to rise, somebody still gives life on the seventh day, and so they would agree that God himself works on the Sabbath. Um, God is the only one who is exempt from that command, because if he didn't, everything would stop. So when Jesus, in his reply to them, says um, that my father, uh, the Lord God, he is always at work to this very day, that bit they would not have any problem with. The problem is, Jesus says, more than that, and that's what gets him in trouble. That's why his defense, um, in some ways, goes so badly. What does he do that so upsets them? And Well, first of all, he calls, Jesus, uh, he calls God my father, my father. He claims a particular relationship with God the Father, but then he throws in a particularly big grenade. He doesn't just say, my Father is always working to this very day, this very Sabbath day. He says, I too am working. He says, I am in the same category as God. We're all agreed God is allowed to work on the Sabbath. So am I. Nobody else is, but I may. I wonder if we could picture the the TV drama version of this sort of story. Jesus has been arrested by the religious police, and his solicitor arrives to give him some advice. He says, Jesus, look, you're, um, you're in quite a lot of trouble. They're going to charge you for breaking the Sabbath. So I want you just to sit there, and when they ask you a question, you just say, no comment. Got it? No comment. The religious police come in. And say, well, Jesus, what have you got to say for yourself? And the solicitor's going, no comment, no comment. Uh, Your rules don't apply to me because I'm God. Solicitor just think, I can't help this man. This is what Jesus does. Um, He throws in this massive grenade to say it's not simply that he's worked on the Sabbath, but he calls himself equal with God. God and I are able to keep working on the Sabbath. And that does it for Jesus. And at this point in John's Gospel, things are going to get much, much more dangerous for him. From this point on, they are going to want to kill him because of these sorts of things that he's saying. And we'll see how that gathers through the rest of John's Gospel. What it does more immediately, though, is it raises a really big question, a question that the rest of this passage is going to be trying to think about. What do we do if there is Jesus and there is God, and they are both working? What does that mean? Are there somehow two gods here? Or are there two separate people, a father and a son, who have different agendas, different plans? That's the big question that Jesus um, starts to, to try to answer. He's going to explain to us how it works, that he is the son who is God, and he has a father who is also God, and how you don't end up with two people doing their own thing. That's what we're going to try um, to get our heads around this morning. Um, I think this is the most deep and rich and hard to understand passage in John's gospel this morning. Um, I will probably say that until I find the next one that also feels very deep and very hard. There are some more coming. But right now it does feel like a particularly profound and deep passage. Um, It's important to say then that we are not going to be able to understand everything that is written here and we are talking about this profound mystery of how there can be one God who exists in three persons. And as we listen to this language that describes God as Father and Son, we're going to have to try and take this language and think, how does that work when we're speaking about a God who never changes, a God who is eternal? It's so far out of our experience that it's hard for us to do that. We're going to struggle. There's not, we're not going to understand everything this morning. But what I do want us to do as we go through this passage um, is to see how uh, there are lots of different elements here that should make us very, very glad that God is this way, that there is a father and a son who relate in these ways, and it will encourage us to pay very close attention to what he has to say. So what does Jesus reveal about himself and the Father um, firstly, that the Father and the Son are perfectly united. Um, in some ways, this is the big idea. And you can see it because it comes at the start of this section, at the end of this section. And before Jesus starts talking about those testimonies in verse 30, we get two verses. In verse 19, um, it reads, And that the Son can do nothing by himself. And then down there in verse 30, Jesus will say, By myself, I can do Nothing. Now that's the first hard thing to understand. Um, It could sound as if Jesus is saying, I can't do anything without somebody else's help. As if we're supposed to picture him maybe as a, uh, in the future there's going to be a robot who sits in your cupboard and only when you walk into the room does he come alive. That he can do nothing without you. He's got no power of his own. Well it's not that idea at all. Um, It's not as if he just powers up or when the father is around. What he's trying to get at is that he doesn't do anything on his own. He doesn't work solo. Um, It must mean that because look at verse 19. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does. There's actually no limit to what Jesus can do. Um, He can do everything that the Father does. He does everything that the Father does. And they are perfectly united. They are inseparable in how they work. The son can do nothing by himself because he is always working with the father. And with the father, he does everything the father does. Now, why is that good news for us? Well, it simply means this, that there is no conflict or chaos in heaven. Um, There aren't lots of gods up there at war with each other and competing with each other that somehow we need to keep on the right side of. And that's what lots of people thought when John was writing. And those Greek gods or Roman gods who were fighting it out, and we've been watching the Percy Jackson series at the moment, um, it's, it's that very idea. There are lots of gods out there. You've got to try and keep everyone happy, and it's basically impossible. Somebody's always going to be mad at you. Now, that might feel like a world very far away from where we are now, but I I wonder if it really does. Don't you sometimes experience that thought that you have lots and lots of masters that you're trying to please? Um, The boss at work, the inbox, the family member who least approves of you. Um, None of them are merciful. All of them want your attention. All of them expect you to be there, and you feel divided and torn. How do I keep everyone happy? You live in a constant state of tension. But what this passage says to us is, above all of this, there is one God, a father and son who are so united in purpose, that above all of those other pressures on your time, you can look up and know there is one there, and he loves you, and he understands, and everything fits under him. That's encouraging. Or maybe as we think about the state of the world today and we look around and we think, well, there's America and there's China and there's Russia and there's Iran. There are all these states and and how on earth do we have any confidence for the future? Who is going to win? Who do we try and keep on side? Who can we trust? But here in John's gospel, Jesus lifts our eyes to the heavens where there is no conflict. There are no superpowers battling it out. There is a father and a son in perfect unity. It's the first thing to see. The second thing I'd love us to notice as Jesus describes his relationship with the Father, is that the Father and the Son love one another. And there in verse 20, "For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does." Such a lovely verse that the pictures the Father loving his son and so always having, a, having him at his side sharing the work that he's doing. Now again, we need to be um, careful here. We'll just move that slide on um, to the next title, thank you. Um, the love of the Father and the Son for one another. The Father always has his Son with him um, and, sh- and, and gets him to share in his work. Now again, we need to be careful because um, this language here, it could sound a little bit like Jesus is an apprentice who's learning as he goes along. Um, as if he kind of starts out as a really clueless apprentice who doesn't know one end of a hammer from another, but slowly he sort of picks it up and learns on the job. Um, That's not the idea here, because um, God, the Father, and the Son um, are eternally at work. and There is no way that Jesus begins this sort of role um, or um, has things to learn. But rather the picture is of a father who is with his Son, Um, who loves to have him with him um, and so loves to give him good things. Um, Notice that he doesn't treat him as a kind of servant and just gives him the boring jobs to do. Um, He's not a servant in that way. Um, The father has the son join him in all of the great work of being God. What does um, the son do? Well, just like the father, he gives life. Verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. So part of the Father's love for the Son is this desire to share everything with Him, to work with Him in all things. And He wants to honor His Son and for His Son to be honored. And have a look at verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. A beautiful thing here. There is no competition for glory between a father and a son. Sometimes that's a kind of feature of how fathers and sons relate, isn't it? Something of a tension. Who is going to get to the glory? Some sort of sense of competition. Can he beat me at wrestling yet? Mercifully, not yet. Um. How does the son relate to this father? If this father draws his son in, lavishes love on him, gives him good things, shares with him all the best work of being God, how does the son respond? And for that, we need to look down at verse 30, where Jesus speaks about how he relates to his father. Jesus says in verse 30, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. The son, in return, lives to please his father. A beautiful glimpse of this life of love that the father draws his son in and works with him, loves him, and the son is delighted to join in that work, seeking to please his father and not himself. Now again, what sort of a world does it teach us that we live in to understand God this way? Well, it says that God in His very nature is not self-centered. Do you see that? There is a Father who is loving and giving good things to His Son. There is a Son who loves to please His Father. There is an other person centeredness to God in the way that they exist as Father and Son and also as Spirit. That is striking. In a, in a world that teaches us to be profoundly self-centered, to think that our first moral responsibility is to ourselves, to be ourselves, to love ourselves, to fulfill ourselves. But here at the heart of the universe is a father and a son who love one another. So who is in control of the world? A father and son who are perfectly united. A father and son who love one another. Um, Next, a, a father who gives gifts to his Son. Let's look down to verses 26 and 27. There we read, "'And for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of man.'" Um, actually, it's the language of giving in both of those verses. Um, where the NIV there has granted, it's, it's the same verb, to give. The father has given the son to have life in himself and he's given him authority. How does the father relate to the son he gives? Let's think for a moment what it means for the father to have life in himself and to give life in himself um, to uh, his son. That, that gift of life It's not at all like the kind of gift that we receive and the life that we have. We don't have life in ourselves. That is um, what it is to be God. To say that um, I don't simply partake in life, I haven't been given the breath of life, uh, a breath that will eventually leave me, but rather the thought that I am life and that God is life, the great I am the one who has no beginning and no end, who doesn't receive his existence from anybody else. He is utterly self-sustaining, limitless. If you're trying to wrap your head around that, there's one of the lovely pictures in the Bible. Think of um, the burning bush. As God reveals himself to Moses, it is a fire that burns and burns and doesn't consume um, the bush that it's burning. And so this is a fire that is never going to run out. It's a very small picture of of what God is. His life that is utterly self-sustaining, utterly limitless. Life in himself. Our life, it's more like taking a sparkler to that bush and it's going to flame brightly just very briefly and then it will fizzle out. But this is a fire that burns on forever. And what the Father has done is give that life to his Son Again, it it never had a beginning. It wasn't a point in time where we could say the son received this. He has somehow always been given this by the father. He lives forever. He has that sort of life. It's another way of saying that he is truly God, and it's going to help us understand how it is that he can give life to others. He can give life out of that abundant, inexhaustible life that he has. Now, scratching your heads, it's tough work, isn't it? But let's just enjoy again what that does teach us about our God. It means that as we think of God the Father in particular, we are being taught to think of him as a God who gives. That as we think about him eternally in his relationship with his son, he is a father who gives gifts. So crucial to see that. That God doesn't need anything. He doesn't depend on anyone. His life is limitless. And that means that he can just give and give and give. We see it in the way that he relates to his son as the father who gives. And we see it as we come to approach him as our father. To know that um, he is the giver. As we keep reading through John's gospel, look out for that language. You'll find it everywhere. Jesus will speak about how the Father has given him all things and yet he is somehow undiminished because he can give all things without losing anything of himself. So who is God? Who is at the heart of this universe? A perfectly united Father and Son. A Father and Son who love one another. A Father who gives good gifts to his children. And then all of that overflows to us. Um, it's a final point from this section. The Father sends the Son to us so that we can have eternal life. And um, if you look down at um, verses 24 to 29, uh, and um, have a look down there, if you would, for the word life or live. Um, if you've got a John journal, you might like to draw a circle around it or underline it. If you're using a church Bible, maybe just use your finger. Um, But just find all of the references, verses 24 to 29. How many times do you see the word live or life in those verses? Not looking for someone to shout it out, but are you starting to see lots and lots of references? Um, It's a passage all about life. And can you see in those verses how it starts to fit with everything that we've said so far? Who is God? He is the God who has life in himself. And he's given the Son to have life in himself so that we can receive life, so that 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 gift can overflow towards us. Or a father who gives good gifts to his son, so that his son can give good gifts to us. A father who gives to his son and then sends his son to us. All of this is cascading out from who God is. This gift of life. What does life look like here? What life are we given Well, verse 24 tells us that it is a life that we can experience here and now. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Sobering words. Jesus is saying that left by ourselves, we are dead. We are in death. Jesus' way of saying that left to ourselves, we are cut off from God and who he is. He is a God of love and generosity and life. And we are all part of a dark world with its hatreds and its self-centeredness and its death. But in verse 24, Jesus says, if we hear Jesus' words and believe him, that he has come, that he can give us this gift, then we can enjoy eternal life now. We can know that He's given Himself for our sins, that we won't face judgment. We can be brought out of death and given new life. We can be born again. That life can begin in us now. So what does this life look like that is overflowing to us from Father and Son? It means life in the here and now, knowing God, being brought out from death, And that it also means enjoying life in the world to come. God is not going to leave this world as it is forever. Um, As we've heard, God has given authority to Jesus to be the great judge of the world. Um, And so he will come back. Verse 25, Jesus says it. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Or again, down in verse 28. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. There will be judgment on that day. And our lives will be laid bare. It is the kind of judgment that the world craves, isn't it? Um, A just and a fair judgment. No miscarriages of justice, no vested interests. What does Jesus say in verse 30? I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. It's the justice that we long for in this world, but it is a justice that gives us nowhere to hide. A fair and a just judgment is going to lay bare the evil in our lives and we would receive the condemnation we deserve. But if we put our trust in Jesus in this life, we can know that we will hear his voice. And when we hear his voice on that day, it will be the sweetest sound. It will be the voice that calls us out of our graves to live with him forever. That's been a precious thing this week. To know for sure that all of those years ago, um, when Nigel put his trust in Jesus, he moved from death to life. Um, However hard life became, from that point on, he had eternal life. And we know that the next great sound that he will hear will be the voice of Jesus, calling him out to new life and he will be more alive than he has ever been. That is God's great gift to his world. Um, Life and love that he doesn't keep within the Trinity, as perfect and beautiful as that is, but it overflows to us, that we might enjoy that life, that we might be brought into it. All we need to do is to listen to Jesus' words and believe. Believe. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, time is running a little short, but we are going to look at the rest of the chapter. Um, we're going to do that because it raises a couple of really important questions for us. We've been talking about this great promise that we can be raised to new life, that we can receive this gift. What Jesus goes on to talk about is how we have every reason to believe him that we ought to listen and believe, knowing that we can trust him, that there are many reasons to do so. Um, Jesus, as he begins that section, um, starting in verse 31, um, he says, you don't just take it from me. Um, Jesus is utterly trustworthy, but he knows there are many other people who are going to testify, many other reasons to put um, our trust in Jesus. Um, If I just read for us verses um, 33 to 40 again, what I'd like you to do is listen out for how many witnesses there are, how many good reasons there are to trust what Jesus is saying. So from verse 33, you were sent to John and he's testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that my Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come To me to have life. There's lots going on there, but what Jesus is doing is listing out all of the people you could listen to, all of the things you could look at to take Jesus seriously, to realize what he's saying is true. We know it sounds fabulous the thought that Jesus is going to come back, the thought that dead people are raised from the grave. But Jesus says there are so many different things you could listen to. There is John the Baptist, he gave his testimony. There are the works that the Father has given him to do, the signs that Jesus is performing to show us that he can give this kind of life. There is the Father who himself has testified. There are the scriptures who testify about him, all of the ways in which hundreds of years before Jesus came, his life, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection were all promised and prophesied there. There are so many reasons to believe what Jesus is saying. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't know where to start or I'm not persuaded. Um, the place I would encourage you to start, I think, is here in John's gospel, looking at the works of Jesus. It's what John is trying to do. He's trying to show us and um, the different things that Jesus did. Um, later on in the book, we'll read, and these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs, these works, these miracles that Jesus performs. Of course we know those sorts of things don't normally happen. It's the whole point. But you're surrounded today by people who have read these stories and realized the best explanation for all of this is that Jesus really did do these things. And as we keep reading through John's Gospel, we are going to see more and more wonderful things. We are going to see Lazarus, Jesus' friend, die and be in a grave, and we're going to see Jesus come to that grave and call Lazarus out to life. We're going to see there and then, he has this sort of power to say these things. We're going to see Jesus himself raised from the dead. You can think these things through. you can explore what might the other explanations be. Bring your questions. Think it through with us. There are many, many reasons to believe. But then just before we finish, there is a warning from Jesus that talks about why it is that we might not believe. And it's got nothing to do with a lack of evidence. Nothing at all. Let's pick it up from verse 41. Jesus says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's the key verse, verse 44, the last thing that we just read. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. There's the issue. They are so concerned with receiving glory from one another, wanting to impress others, and thinking that um, that is um, the best way to live, to seek glory from themselves, um, and so to to compete in their righteousness, um, perhaps. Now, why, why would... Seeking glory from others stop them from believing. So try to think that through as we close. And well, one of the reasons why it will stop them believing is because it means they are invested in wanting to think really well of themselves. If I'm trying to gather glory from other people, I need to keep up this show that actually I am somebody quite glorious. I am somebody who, wants to, who ought to be and praised and exalted. And yet what Jesus is calling us to is to acknowledge that we are not ourselves glorious that we fall far short, that we are lost and dead in our sins. We are as helpless as that man we saw last week um, who needed Jesus to make him well. For as long as we try and think well of ourselves, we're not going to believe in Jesus because to believe in Jesus starts with saying, I am helpless and dead and I need Jesus. But then it also calls us to give glory to somebody else to decide that life is not about trying to um, gather glory and praise and honor for myself, but rather to live for another. When Jesus says, you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, I think he's talking about himself. He is the glory who has come from God. And so it means turning our life around and saying, I'm not going to live for myself any longer. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to make much of him. I'm going to glorify him. And as we've seen this morning, can you imagine a God more worthy of glorifying than the God that we've described? A father and a son who are perfectly united, who love one another, whose relationship is is characterized by this love for the other rather than for self, not pursuing their own glory, but seeking to glorify and honor one another. Do you see how those things spill over to us, the gift of life and love, the generosity that comes from Father and Son to us? Why not spend your life loving Him, knowing Him, and knowing that you are utterly safe in a world over which He reigns? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much here that we will struggle to understand as we try and think of you, Father, Son, and Spirit living in eternity. And yet, Father, thank you so much for how much is truly revealed here that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are perfectly united. You live in this life of love. You live in this other-person-centered gift of honoring and glorifying another rather than yourself. Father, how we praise you that that life of love Um, and generosity spills over to us, that you send your son into the world, you give him that he comes, that we might have life. Father, we praise you for the hope that gives us now. We praise you for the hope that gives us for the future. And we pray that please, as we reflect on these things together, you will deepen and strengthen our confidence and our determination not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.